Welcome back, everybody, to The Joe Costello Show. On this week's episode, I have a dear friend of mine. Her name is Sarah Blanchard. She is a world traveler, a Harvard graduate, a TEDx speaker. She has written a book called The Flex Mom. And most recently, she started a podcast called Dear White Women. She is a very interesting person, a very kind soul, very educated, smart, funny, you name it. She's got it all happening, and I'm so glad to have her with me this week. So please sit back and enjoy this amazing episode with Sarah Blanchard. All righty, Sarah Blanchard, finally. We get to do this together. This is awesome. We're both in front of microphones. We're both wearing headphones. Like you said, before we came live, it's like we sure have come a long way. Yeah. And we're so fancy with all the equipment, aren't we? <laughs> I know. It's awesome. We look like we know what we're doing, actually. It's, it's amazing what appearances can, <laughs> can do. <laughs> and you are coming from uh, the freezing Denver area, and I am in sunny, warm Arizona, even though today is not, I guess, that warm, but it's it's still a lot nicer than what you're suffering through. It is all relative too. Yeah, yes. it is. It's the ups and downs of the temperature here are crazy. We were in 75 degrees and sunny and I got a little bit of a sunburn on Saturday and here we are a few days later in like a multi-day cold snap where snow is drifting down in the clouds. <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, you and I have been friends for a really long time. Uh, we've both uh, have done a lot of different things over the years that we've known each other. But um, I want to start at least giving the listeners and if people are watching this on YouTube, eventually the viewers, um, an overview of where you came from, uh, you know, starting, you can go back as far as you want, but I, I kind of want to do the early days super quickly to jump to, you know, college and then, um, and then, you know, you lived overseas and, and all of that really cool stuff. So, and then we'll just go from there. All right. That sounds good. Um, grew up in a blissful, happy childhood, really. If I look back on it, you know, suburbs of New York and all that good stuff, um, with a white dad and a Japanese mom. So a little different than perhaps the typical American experience. I had to go to Japanese Saturday school every Saturday of my childhood, but um, ended up going to Harvard as an undergrad, graduated and moved to Tokyo. I really wanted to see what my mom's life was like. She's an immigrant. Okay, but wait, uh, from don't, Japan. don't skip over the Harvard part too quick, because I want to know how you did that and, and, and how, how do you how you went to a school like that and what your thought process was. And was it just like, not everybody just all of a sudden goes to Harvard. So don't, don't, right. don't, don't skip it. Do not yeah. skip it. Okay. No, fine. it's, it's celebrate my success. Yes. Joe. It's, fine. it's too big of a thing to just ignore and go, Oh yes, yeah, so I went to Harvard and then no, you can't go that quick through the Harvard. Okay. Um, I was one of the kids that I think had a, I wasn't the top in anything. I was the well-rounded kid who had interest in a lot of different things. I mean, did it hurt that my dad went to Harvard? I'll just, you know, no, that didn't hurt. But I also, you know, did really well in school. And I played piano my whole life growing up, classical piano, and competed in things and performed in New York City. I went to Japanese Saturday school, like I said, so I'm fluent in two languages. Um, eventually got into sports. So I guess that sort of helped me be a little more well-rounded. I don't know. I think I, I, I worked hard, but I feel like I was lucky. You know, I look at these kids getting into a place like that now. I'm like, how are these people solving world problems and like having a life and like, I would never get in now. I wouldn't. Really? These kids are amazing. Oh gosh, I don't think so. You know, but, but I was, I, you know, it was a great experience. It was interesting going from being, you know, fairly well-rounded and sheltered, but yet having this freedom because my mom, like I was able to go into New York City from the time I was in eighth grade 
by myself mm-hmm. before cell phones, right? Like these were the days of you carried around quarters and threw them into those pay phones in the New York City corners. You rode the subway and like I had that freedom. They gave me that freedom. I had to earn that freedom. And so I feel like there was a bit of independence also that probably helped. But I showed up at Harvard and man, people are smart. <laughs> I was blown away <laughs> by the people who were there. Really cool places, you know, and, and, and there was a diversity. I mean, I, I did meet for the first time ever friends who had gone to boarding school. I didn't even know that was a thing, really. Like, I didn't really right. understand right. that kids were sent away was anybody from named, their homes. Was anybody named like Buffy or, or Biff or whatever, <laughs> whatever those names are? <laughs> no, but there were several, you know, the fourths. Right, of, you know, right, of like right, the, right. the generational stuff. They were wearing Burberry coats yeah. freshman year. And you're like, wow, that's expensive. You know, um, we didn't grow. We did grow up in New York or in the suburbs of New York. And so by like, uh, you know, cross culture country standards, we probably were middle class, upper middle class, whatever. But my dad had lost his job for a little while. So we went through economic hardship in the few years right before I left for school. And so I had come from this place of feeling like, oh, my gosh, like, we don't have much right now. And I'm looking at these people who have so much, so much money and so much intelligence and worldliness. And I definitely was like, this is amazing. It was, it was an amazing experience. And the opportunities uh, that we had while we were there were incredible. And you're in these buildings that are old and I don't know, it was an institution and I got to be part of it. And I'm really, really grateful. Cool. Okay. Well, good. Now I feel much better. Now we can move on. Now we can move on. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Um, Yeah. Then I really wanted to like experience my mom's culture. So like I said, you know, I had had to go to Japanese school, was forced to learn another language, which when I was a kid was really resentful of. And now I'm so grateful that my mom did that because I didn't do it with my own kids because it was so hard. And I have a new appreciation for how hard my mom worked to make sure we were bilingual. Um, but I wanted to live in Japan and yet I came out with so much college debt that I was like, I can't just go teach English in Japan. I need to have like a proper job. And so I got a job at Goldman Sachs. So a huge international banking firm. And I got an internship there during college. And then I got to go there. I got a job offer after that. So I moved to Japan after graduation. So Um, when you were in Harvard, what were you studying? Was it finance or no? <laughs> no, oh, it's like okay. the most useless degree ever. East Asian studies. Wow. I don't even know what the I appropriate. Have, yeah, I have no idea what that is. I don't be. even know what it really is in hindsight. <laughs> I really wish I had studied psychology. And I, I kid you not, I stopped at the psychology table because from the time I was a young, like I've always been interested in psych, which will come full circle later in this conversation. But I literally looked at the table and the Students who were there behind the table telling you about the thing kind of freaked me out. So I walked away from the table. Like it was that was why I didn't choose psych as my major. And I chose East Asian studies ultimately, which in the end worked out well because I got to go to Japan through connections in the, you know, the language program and that sort of stuff that told me about events, you know, you know, the whole universe, trust the universe and just do what you do anyway. But I, um, so I wound up in Japan and I lived there for four years living in Tokyo as one of the very few non-Japanese women who like basically white women-ish. I mean, I'm mixed, but at that point I presented as white. And so there was very few of us who weren't strippers who worked in Tokyo at that time. Wow. Like who were in finance. So you had the English teachers, but they didn't live in like the center of Tokyo because it's so expensive. Yeah. And so the, I, I still know a handful of the women that I worked with there. And then, yeah, you, it's, you were either a stripper or you were, or a dancer, or you were in finance in the, in the middle of the city. And I would think so I did that for four years as a white woman over in Japan and Japan is very much a male society, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's really hard to be at an equal sort of um, level with your male counterparts out there, um, even when you were going to school. I mean, after school and after you went there. Yeah, you know, but to be fair, the organization I worked at was incredible. Like, yes, there was absolutely some hierarchy and Mm -hmm. stuff that would be deemed inappropriate now, for sure, in this day and age. Uh, But I think I got away with it. Like I was, because I speak Japanese fluently, but I was perceived as a foreigner 
anytime I could speak Japanese was a bonus and they appreciated me for it. They didn't expect me to play the role of the traditional Japanese salesperson and do the things that you're supposed to do, like be the person who serves the tea and the whatever, right? I, I didn't have to do any of it. Whereas literally my one, I remember one of my friends at the time was also born and raised in the States, but she was biologically all Japanese and she was also bilingual, but was expected to play that role. Got it. And so there was definitely an interesting learning curve about what it meant to be a foreigner mm-hmm. in a high-powered high place like that. But, you know, the top management, it was a very flat hierarchy there. You know, if you think about Goldman Sachs here, when, even when I moved to New York, actually, to work in their offices for a little while, you'd have this, like, oh, be careful, their boss is coming, pretend you're doing work. Whereas there, you would just, you would, you would hang out with everybody outside of work. The big bosses would come and sit in the chair next to you and ask you really, how are you doing? Hey, can you be involved in this project, that project? Like you really had access to management in a way that I don't think you would have in a bank uh, in the US. Wow. So I learned a lot. I mean, these guys were great people, mostly guys. There was also a really, really cool female boss out there too. Now, were you fluent by the time you landed there with Goldman Sachs? In like conversational Japanese, yeah. yeah. But did I know how to say profit margin and like stocks and stuff like that? No, that was definitely specialized language I had to learn. But you ended up probably you ended up having that by the time you left there. Like you were completely fluent. Yeah, though it was still you know business was done in both languages. Okay, so I could get away with not having to learn it completely fluently. Right, but um. It was an interesting time. I mean, it was, sure. you pl- party hard, work hard, you know, early twenties, you know, you Nothing's just changed. <laughs> it's still the same. Oh, right. I know. Oh, <laughs> right. She says that she falls asleep at yeah. 9 PM with their warm, fuzzy socks on. Uh, now. It's okay. That's all right. Okay. So cool. So then you were there for four years. I was there for four years. Okay. And then eventually I was asked, I, I both wanted to and asked to move to, a different office, the Hong Kong office, because they wanted me to help build the Pan-Asia team that I was on. Mm-hmm. And so I moved to Hong Kong um, after much campaigning on my part, which was awesome. And then I was, you know, I, and I think within three weeks of landing there, I met my now husband. Wow. So we met randomly and he's not, I mean, he was just there for work on a work trip. So that was a fortuitous move at the right time, you know, and all paths changed because of that. But shortly after I moved to Hong Kong, probably I moved in the summer. And then by the fall, we found out my dad was sick. Okay. So I got a call. It was like the longest in my life I'd ever gone without talking to my parents. It was like a month or something like that, that I hadn't, you know, because I had been moving from Tokyo, packing up and then moving to Hong Kong and then unpacking and settling in. And I got a phone call and they were like, uh, and then I had met John and all these amazing things were happening. And I had like, before I knew it, three weeks went by and I got a phone call and there were beeps in the background. And my dad was like, Sarah, I have to tell you something. I'm like, where are you in the hospital? I have a brain tumor. Oh. And it was just like this. So he like, called what you. What is happening? Yeah. So he called you directly. It wasn't got it. Okay. Um, and told me the story of how that happened. I, Kept going to work for a little bit, like the next week, a couple of days, but found myself like in the refreshment corner, like just sort of holding back tears. And I think a boss, somebody found me in there once and explained what was going on. And they're like, if you don't get on a plane to go home and take care of your family, we will put you on a plane. Wow. So go. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean. Like Goldman, the people at Goldman, the manager, the people there were incredible and they still probably are, you know, um, I really appreciated everything about what they did. They put me on a plane. They paid for it. They called it a business trip. I spent three weeks helping my dad get second opinions and all the things. Um, he did wind up passing about a month after we found, I got that phone call. Okay. And you were um, there, you were home. I was home. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I was home. Um, and I had just flown home. I had just gone back to Hong Kong. And then this is where music plays into it. I had gone back to Hong Kong cause I bought John tickets to go see the Eagles for his birthday. Nice. And I was like, well, we got you set up. You're going to, you, your treatment's going to start. Like, let me go. There's nothing more I can do. Let me go back. And then as we literally were leaving the Eagles concert, my phone rang and it was my brother saying, you need to come home. 
And so that's where Hotel California continues to have a very special place in my heart Uh because that was the last song they performed as we were leaving. And then I got the call. So it's like burned in my memory is this bittersweet song. But then I got on a plane that night, like I called the bosses, told them all what was happening. And again, I went home and was there uh, to be able to see him pass basically, you know, within less than a couple of days, he had passed away. So it rocked my world. Yeah. You know, um, my brothers were still in college. My mom was a mess. And so I got a transfer and moved back to the New York office. And again, they were all great. It was a cool experience working there, but I was depressed. I mean, you know, how, how I was holding them all up, helping, you know, loan forgiveness, making sure my mom was functioning and eating and doing that stuff, though it was all a blur for her. Like she, they were married for so long. It was really heartbreaking to see her go through all that and sort of feel like she was gone, taking care of my brothers. Um, so eventually we moved back to New York and, and John actually was able to sort of be around during a lot of that time. And so I think a few, I don't know, six months half a year after that, I basically was like, I, I can't go into work and cry multiple times in the bathroom a day. Like, I think I need a leave of absence here. And I took one, uh-huh. found out that the number one reason people take leaves of absences was for mental health issues. I had no idea that that was actually a thing that people did and that it's an option and all of that sort of stuff. But I did, and they were amazing. And I wound up just realizing my dad, one of the things he always did with me was keep in touch via email. And every email was signed, keep the balance. Because like I said, you work hard, party hard, but it was not a balanced lifestyle. And I really realized during that leave of absence that if my dad dying so young and so suddenly, and he and I were so close, if that wasn't going to shake me out of this lack of balance and this lack of doing, I didn't love what I was doing. I love the people I worked with. I was good at what I did. I could have done more, but I was exhausted from it. And I realized if that wasn't enough to shake me out of it, nothing would be. So I was either going to be making a choice to be tied to golden handcuffs, getting paid really well, doing this high-flying, cool thing, or having to make this crazy leap into what on earth do I really want to do? I don't know, but I need to leave and find it. And when was this? never going to leave. When was this like time-wise, just the, what year or so? Mm, in 05. Okay. 2005. So... I did. I left. It was the hardest decision I've ever made, but one of the most proud decisions I've ever, like the things I'm most proud of. Um, and I had had enough savings that I could pay for it. Like I made sure that I was like on my own. I, I had enough to save to like pay for everything for a year, which I was really grateful for Mm. that. I had done that. Um, worked in a little coffee shop in Brooklyn, met all these people who did what they loved and made money. And I'm like, that's a world that exists. I didn't know that that existed. I literally did not know, right? Like when you're raised in this way of like Harvard, Goldman Sachs, like that's success. That's what you're supposed to do. And I had no idea because everyone says that's what you're supposed to do. There's no other way or you're not successful and therefore you won't be happy. I didn't realize that people could be happier the other way too. Yeah, that's And it was... It was really eye-opening. I'm not sure if I could see you as a barista, but that's okay. I I smiled when I served people coffee. <laughs> Here's this for humanity, though. It was really interesting. I love the coffee shop I worked at. It was this little mom and pop shop. Oh, and the owners were great. Um, but people would treat baristas like crap. Oh. And like they would just kind of like, meh, give me this, whatever. And I remember, and you'd still smile, and it was fine. It was still a local shop, so you knew your regulars, and it's fine. But I remember one day the owner let it slip that I had gone to Harvard and worked at Goldman Sachs. And there was a one guy who had always been grumpy, suddenly was interested in me and wanted to ask questions and was like polite. And I was like, oh, interesting. People are rude to people they deem under them unless they learn, like, we're not yeah. seeing this humanity in each other unless there's like a label or someone's worthwhile. That's huge. I promise I will never be that person is what I basically Yeah, you never you never point. know the underlying anything about somebody, right? We we learn that every day. You you sometimes you think you meet somebody and they they look sad or they're grumpy or or vice versa, they're super. But you you don't understand what what the underlying thing is happening in their life and we assume too often that they're they have a certain job because they're not intelligent or they have a certain job because they're super intelligent like but you don't know all that went into everything. There's no way to know that. So that's why these conversations are cool, right? That, that for me, podcast, I learned so much about 
human beings in general. So this is a, a cool platform to, to do that and where you're having these candid conversations to find out how you got from point A to point B in your life and, and what you've learned along the way. So cute. Yeah. Right. I love podcasting as you know. Yes. I so <laughs> yes, I agree completely. All right. So, so you uh, basically where you lived was uh, I think initially Long Island. Right. And then, mm-hmm. and then uh, where in Japan first in Tokyo, Tokyo, Tokyo then Hong Kong, and then Hong Kong, then back to New York. Then, yep. Then Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Right. Okay, cool. Um, ever, then, did you guys ever live in the city? Nope. No. Brooklyn was as close as you got. Yeah. I mean, it was the easiest way to commute to downtown where my office was when I was still at yep. Goldman. Yeah. And then we moved further away into like a more juicy, fun part of Brooklyn once we were not tied to that commute. Sure. Um, which was super fun. Right. Oh. I loved it. It was fun. <laughs> yeah, and you get the best of both worlds. You can live there cheap enough, but still have all of the city as, you know, at your fingertips. So totally. All right. Cool. So let's go to um and I don't want to skip over anything super important, but uh like you were kind of on this path when I met you because just the chat chew and chocolate days right that was like oh my gosh yeah right this was this networking thing that you you started to do and even though it was on a just neighborhood level of you you know going to someone's house who's hosting it and sitting around and having these conversations this is the uh, you know this is the path that it took you to now but from that time you've you've gotten into the next part of your life, which is you're trying to figure out what to do. So what was the first concrete thing that you did? Because I know you wrote a book, but I don't know if that's really the next thing. No, in between. So at that coffee shop, an old friend of mine had come in and was like, I really want to do this happiness project. Okay. And she's like, I know you, like, you're the person I'm supposed to talk to about this. And I'm like, yeah, I wish I knew the name of that guy who taught me happiness as an undergrad. But I was like, he's got this name that was pretty unique and I really don't remember what it was. And my mom at that time said, you have to come with me to a yoga retreat. They seem like totally unrelated things. But my mom dragged me to this yoga retreat and we walked in late to the first session and it was a huge circle. And across the room was the dude whose name I couldn't remember, who had been my teacher as an undergraduate like over seven years before. And it was Tal Ben-Shahar, who is one of the, my men- he's been my mentor ever since, because I ran into him there. I was like, what have you been doing? Oh my gosh, you're the guy I needed to talk to about happiness. And he's like, yeah, there's this whole field called positive psychology. Now there's this thing called life coaching. My whole world was just like, oh, this is what I meant to do. Like, I mean, we did an aura reading and the lights were just shining. Like it was just this crazy, like I'm supposed to be here. And my mom said, this is why I literally told my friend she wasn't allowed to come with me because I had to take you instead. And that to me was this cool example of just like things. First of all, the fact that he remembered me and I remembered him, I was like, that was a good relationship that I had as an undergrad then. Right. Right. It speaks to him and his quality of character to be willing to sit down with me after that session and tell me all about these things and take this chance to like fill me in on this whole world that he's working on. And at that point, um, after that retreat, I got certified in life coaching. And so I did that for a few years and then had the kids. So, well, you know, but yeah. Right. So what does the life coaching process look like? Because I'm sure it varies from program to program, but what's mm-hmm. the basic, when you say you got certified, what does somebody do to get that? I mean, I guess right now you could technically just hang out a shingle and be like, I'm a life coach. You don't need it. But there is a thing called the International Coaching Federation that has accredited programs okay. throughout the country. And I went to um, IPEC. This was forever ago, but I went to IPEC, which basically was, if I'm remembering correctly, like a maybe it was like a seven or eight month program where you did weekly work. You, you showed up live for several long weekend intensives. And in the meanwhile, you did a lot of work in between remotely to catch up with this program. And by the end of that, you have all the skills that you need to properly represent this field of coaching. And so I did that. And then I contacted Tall again and I said, Look, I, you told me about that 
happiness class you were doing. What can I do to get involved? Because it was the last time he was going to be able to teach it again at Harvard. And he was teaching the most popular course at Harvard at that time. Like it was positive psych, you know, 1504, I think, if I'm remembering the number correctly, but it was like this (laughs) happiness course. And it was all these kids wanted it. The Harvard kids wanted this course on happiness. So it was the first of its kind. And I got to be a teaching fellow for that class. And that was when um, I got to meet some incredible other people in the field who are now also incredibly successful in the field. Um, And so Sean Acor, who wrote the forward for my book, uh, was also a teaching, he was a head teaching fellow for that class. And he's incredible with the work that he and his wife do now too. Um, But yeah, so I got to live in a college dorm room as an adult again and go back and live there for a semester just after we were freshly married and like teach kids this class and be a teaching fellow and I learn as I taught. So it was an incredible way to really be immersed in positive psych after I'd already been trained in, as a life coach for a while. And it was, I mean, a game-changing experience. I loved every minute of teaching and those students were awesome. So just to kind of, I don't know, figure out how you literally went from being in this coffee shop to going to a yoga class to seeing this old professor of yours. And how did you figure out that doing something in regards to coaching and happiness? Like it did, did it just click instantly? Like, that's what I want to do. I just want to help people to live more fulfilled lives and be happier and, and whatever. I mean, is that just click all of a sudden? I mean, it was definitely uh, yes. This is like, you know, when you listen to your body and it's just every part of you is like buzzing with excitement. Like you're like, yes, I don't know how or why, but this is a, yes, mm-hmm. it was one of those moments. And I think it was twofold. One, was that, like I said, that psych table as an undergrad freaked me out because the the people sitting behind it, but I was always interested in psych. The downside being, like, I didn't want to focus on the negative side of psychology, right? It's a very necessary field, but there is a lot uh, of responsibility that comes with it. There's a lot of negativity when you're talking about dysfunction and bringing it to function. And until that meeting, when I ran into him, I didn't know there was something that focused on the positive side of life. Like it, it, like literally I had no idea that there was a field out there like that. And it was fairly new, I think at the time. And I think the second part of it was selfish. Like I had come out of losing my dad and I was like, yes, I want to learn how to be happier again. Right. I want to learn the tools to help other people while I'm learning this all for myself. I might as well, again, like learn and teach it all at the same time, like help people as I'm going through it. Cause I think I've always been a people person, like a, a, a helper, I guess. I don't, no, if that's yeah. So you've actually sat there and let me um, bounce a bunch of things off you many times. But that's what you do. But that's <laughs> like, this is true. So yes, you but are you are a my, helper. And I think that's my natural. I don't skill set. It's just how I'm wired. Right. I think right. I love it, and so I think you know for those two reasons, it was the right thing for me to do at that time. Cool. So now you. Uh, you're in New York. You finished this semester doing this, right? Yes. And we had just moved to Arizona when I had actually then moved back to um, teach. Okay. So we were already first in Arizona for a few years. And then, you know, while I had the business and then I was back in Boston and Cambridge teaching uh, as an assistant. And then a few years, well, yeah, within a year, I think, of having taught it and being really excited, like, yes, I can do this while we have kids. And then I had my first kid. Mm-hmm. And she did not want mommy to have anything other than her to do. I think you remember, you and I have known each other for long enough. Yes. And you remember she was... Can you say demanding baby? Is that, <laughs> I know, is, is that the prop? I don't know. Right. She'll hear this someday and she'll come after one. me. <laughs> Oh, she will. Uh, But she's, I mean, she's a great human being. I just had two babies who were really challenging babies. They had like a whole bunch of unique, not unique, but just like uncommon ailments as children. And that required a lot out of me. And I wasn't feeling like I could give the same amount of attention to my clients when a kid was screaming with a babysitter in the same house. Like it felt really like I was being split into working from home 
and having a baby and being like, I know that I can help this child if I literally just go over there and pay attention mm-hmm. to it. Um, and so I did, I shut down the business. That was a really hard choice, but it was exactly what our family needed us to do. So what was the bit like quote? Coaching. Bit, so, okay. And you, I just stopped coaching people. Okay. And you were uh, doing that both live and remotely or. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So sort of clients around the country plus a handful in person. Most of it was done remotely. Okay. Um, all walks of had, life, all sorts of businesses, everything. Yeah. You want, the one time I coached a guy, I had said I only wanted to work with women. Okay. It was what I related to and that sort of stuff. And the one time I opened that rule up and coached a guy by the end of our coaching engagement, I gave him like the farewell. Thanks for the blah, blah, blah. And he was like, okay, can we fuck now? And oh, I was like, nice. oh, okay. That's why I'm only going to go back go. to coaching women. That's so, right. <laughs> like, that's right. Because you obviously, when you're helping these people, you have to get somewhat intimate in their lives, dig into things that are either blocking them or holding them back in some way. And uh, yeah, I can see that. That's well, that's kind of scary, but yeah. Now I really hope my children don't listen to this show. But, <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll make sure that well say no that that interview never happened. You it was just <laughs> you heard us talking about it, but it didn't physically happen. It so didn't happen. Yeah, it didn't no, happen. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so um you have your first child. Mm-hmm. Uh and then do you start to get the itch to go back to something? Yes, I did, like big time. Okay. Because once she was sort of more settled in like early toddlerhood, I was like, oh, I can do this. And then it was like, but we're probably going to have another kid. So it was this, do I start again only to ramp down? Cause that feels really crappy. Yep. And then I was like, okay, fine. I'll suck it up. I'll just stay with both of them. Like, well, so then I had the second child and was at home. And, and you also hard. have to give yourself credit because you are in a circumstance that is different than a lot of relationships, husband and wife with kids, because your husband would be away for periods of time because of his job. And we're not talking, you know, like some people, the balance alone for parents with kids and the husband is away at work and they have a stay at home mom. That's one thing where at night you get some relief when he walks through the door, but you had days of just you with two small children, which is really hard. And you lived in a new place Yep. I mean, just these, all of these things. So thanks. So Joe. kudos to you. I, it's Thank something you. that I would see when I would visit you and be like, Oh God, I don't know how she does it, but she's, she's doing it. But, and you, you did it in a really calm way. So, you know, appearances can be deceiving. Isn't it? Funny? Oh, no, yeah. but I mean, you were in it. Like, you know, you did see, I mean, that was how it was. It was hard. Thank you for saying that the kids were challenging and it was, I think the hardest part was getting my mind around it. Right. They were hard. I mean, they were used to, I mean, they were unhealthy. Like it was just stuff. There were issues that we had to fight through that for them that, that they were having challenges with when they were little, but it was exhausting. Yeah. And I remember being out, I mentioned this in the book too, but like, I remember being out at a, I think it was a fundraiser and someone said, you know, I'm so important. I have this job, blah, blah, blah. And then she's like, what do you do? And I was like, I stay at home with my kids. And she literally was like, oh, and walked away from me. And I just remember being crushed because I was so not confident in being this definition of a stay-at-home mom, right? Like I, I didn't I didn't know what to make of my identity yet. And it crushed me. I remember I like, that oh, I story. I, I remember yeah. you tell yeah, I remember that because it's it I was fired up. Yeah, well, and it the old stigmatism of, you know, stay-at-home mom, it just you don't get it unless you live it. And, um, yeah, our, you know, we all look back after the fact and go, God, we put our own moms through hell. And, and we were, I was awful, man. I just drove my poor mother nuts, but, uh, yeah, it's a tough, tough job. And I'd, I'd rather be working than (laughs) out somewhere than actually being a stay at home mom. It's that hard, I think. So kudos to you. Well, thank you. I mean, it was, you know, yeah, you can't fail. You have to do it. Right. Once you, there's no choice. It was, right. we were going to make it through, um, you know, in hindsight, have I beat myself up over it sometimes? Yeah. Could I have handled it with more grace? Probably. Yeah. But you do what you do. And 
all we can do is know better, do better. So I keep working on that, especially in these times of revisiting kids being home all the time. Yeah. So Um, when, when do you get, cause we keep referring to the book, but I'm kind of like, Oh, when does the book come in? Okay. Yeah. So I don't want to jump ahead, but I I feel like we're close. We are. I got crushed. I then was doing some of the stuff you talked about chat chew and like always sort of keeping up I was writing for a mom's blog. I wound up managing the mom's blog. And now this is in Arizona at this point. This is in Arizona. Like as a stay-at-home mom, just sort of had side projects to keep myself occupied and busy. Because I knew I wasn't going to like fully stay at home and not have projects or something forever. Um, And so finally, when the youngest went to kindergarten, was in school full time, I was like, yes, I have time. (laughs) I mean, otherwise they're with you all the time. But I got him out of the house in the morning and I had like six or seven hours where I could actually do something without someone attached to the hip or telling me they were hungry or needing something from me or wanting to play or wanting to read the book for the 1800th time. You know, I loved being with them and I love them, goes without saying. It It was and continues to be hard work to be parents. So, um. Uh, when the youngest one went to school, I really realized I wanted to do something with that first year that was a little bit more like instant gratification, like faster, you know, than I'm going to spend the next five years building up a platform that eventually will get recognized. I wanted something now to be like, I I did something with this first year. And so I found a program that again, one of those, yes, I want to go all in on this kind of things where it was like, do you want to write a book? And it turns out also randomly halfway into the writing of the book, I found like an old goal sheet from when I was doing my life coaching. And it was one of the 10 year goals was to write a book. And I was right at that time that it was like, I'm like, wow, that's weird. When you write your goals down, somehow that manifests, right? Um, So I did that. And it was interesting coming up with this idea of what to write about because I had all these intellectual ideas about what I wanted to write about, like cyberbullying or like the things that I thought would be helpful. And this book program, the the people who worked there were pushing back, being like, well, why are it? Yes, this book needs to be out there, but why do you need to be the one to write it? What are you an expert in? And I remember just venting at that point, sort of half joking, being like, the only thing I'm an expert in is if I could do state, why, why staying at home parenting sucks and what I would do differently if I could do it again. And then I realized that was where the, the passion, like that was what I needed to get out of my system to help other people who were in my situation and what I would have done differently. Right. So they so, were questioning you of why you would write a book about cyberbullying when you actually had real expertise in something else. And that's how they steered you into the book that you ended up writing. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So you were thinking of a new idea outside of your real world, even though you might've had knowledge of all of it. Right. But they basically brought you back in and said, no, but this is what you live day in and day out. And this is what you should write about. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really cool. The first draft of it came out sounding incredibly bitter. And I thought that was interesting too. Like the editors didn't catch it, but when I had a couple of my friends who know me as a parent look at it, they were like, there are just a few times your tone changes. And considering the tone of my book is the thing that I sort of get the best feedback from, I'm really glad my friend caught that because it sounded really like the first, you know, you always have to have a bad first draft of something, whatever work that comes out the very first time you're trying something is not going to be the best. And so it was great to be able to do that and, and get feedback from people who know me to be like, I would change that tone. I think the challenging part for me in writing the book though, was because it was also, it was called Flex Mom. And it's about this, how to be a happier stay-at-home mom, but it also incorporates a little bit of positive psych in it. And half the time that I was sitting there writing it, I was writing it thinking, what would my mentor think of this book? What would these people that I used to work with in positive psych think of this book? And it would change, like I'd be writing like this and then I'd start worrying about other people. And then I would, you could see my writing style veer into like, you know, in academic writing versus, and I had to keep pulling that back in. And so that sense of comparison or I'm not good enough, or, you know, I need to impress other people can really skewer your voice or sidetrack your voice. If you let it, if you're, if you aren't paying attention to shutting it out. Right. It was about being authentic, right? Not worrying about anybody else and not having a little voice on your shoulder. Yeah. You just had to, had to write it with your own heart and soul. 
Yep. And that can be hard and it's scary. And, you know, how is it going to be met? How do you market? I think in this case, I wrote the book, threw it out to the world. And then I was like, duck, like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. It was almost like, I, I really felt not as proud of it to promote it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's okay. I mean, it is out there. It's not like my most amazing work of my life either, probably, but I'm also really glad because even to this day, I still get weekly messages from people being like, I found your book. Can I have the workbook? Like it's really helping me. And that's, it was been like what, three, four, five, it's been years since I wrote it. Right. So, and it's on, you can get it on Amazon, anywhere you can buy books. Yeah. And you also yeah. ended up doing the audio version of it, right? I did. That was a fun challenge. I bet. The foray into like having mics like this, right? right? I wound up buying this mic thinking I was going to record the audiobook at home. And I didn't think the sound in where I'm recording now, like the office was good enough for an audiobook. So I was doing it in my garage, in my car with like towels draped over It's the things. best. <laughs> When I, heard that, when I heard that story, I was like, <laughs> that is so awesome. I'm going to get to but that then, point here because there's, I actually have to kick everybody out every time I want to do a podcast recording. So eventually they're going to get tired of doing that. I'm going to have to find, I guess some people talk about doing it in their walk-in closet because acoustically it's, it's right. You know, well lined with material and all the things. Right? <laughs> right. I, I posted that photo because then my stomach was gurgling during the recording that as I'm hunched over in the car doing it and it, the mics are so sensitive, they pick everything up and I'm like, now I have to take a break to wait for my stomach to stop gurgling. This is crazy. And I posted it on social media and I had a, a client actually and a, and a friend say, look, my husband's business has a free, like a, a sound booth that they're not using all the time. Would you like me to see if maybe you can get in there and record like in a professional sound booth. And I did. So I switched gears. It was awesome figuring out how to like, I did everything on that book myself, edited it, like recorded it. It was really a cool experience. Yep. How long did it take you to, to uh, actually do the audio of it? It, ah, that's, it's been a while. I can't remember. I do remember it took as much time, if not more to edit it than it did to read the whole book out loud. Right. Um, Probably, in earnest, a couple, a week or two. That's not too bad. It wasn't too bad. How, how many pages is the book again? A mm, hundred and something. So it's okay. a fairly short book. Right. Um, probably three, four, oh gosh, I really don't remember how many hours of recording it is or any of that stuff, you know, but I got the, into the, you can only read, oh my gosh, out loud for a certain period of time without your voice sounding froggy and you being like fried right. standing up reading. the thing. Right. So I broke it into a few chunks, went back in for editing. They were awesome. I was so grateful that, that someone offered a spot sure. and that they were willing to let me use it. And I think the sound quality came out pretty well, but so I had the mic and everything and led right into the next project after that. But yeah. So um, before we get to that though, so somewhere along the line here is the world happiness summit. And the TEDx talk. We can't forget either of those. So I don't know where they fall in the timeline of where we're at right now. They, so I wrote, I did the audio book. I, you know, had sort of done some coaching in between and was keeping up a little bit more with that. Um, And then I think at the end of that year, after my audio book was done, I decided that I wanted to do a TEDx talk. And that was thanks to a prompt from Jamie Myers, Shine Life Design. Oh, cool, yeah. She basically had this challenge where it was like, so I can't remember exactly how it was phrased, but something like, if you could, what, what in your wildest dream have you always said you wanted to do that you could actually do? And on a whim, I was like, I, I truly have always wanted to do a TEDx talk. And it sounded so crazy when I put it out there. And it was this three-month goal. Like, it was within the next three months, let's figure out, what that would look like or how to make it happen. And I kid you not, that last week of the three-month chunk, I got like in. They gave me a slot for a TEDx talk at TEDx Wilmington. And so then I had the next few months to prepare the talk and deliver it. What was the amount was, of time for the talk? What did they give you? I had a seven or eight-minute talk. Okay. And similarly, similar to the when I was writing the book, I kept getting into my head. I'm a really good thinker and I'm also a really good feeler, but they fight with each other sometimes about what needs to be heard more. And I kept writing the initial draft from my brain. And again, another friend came in and she's a public speaker and was like, come on, let me, let me just hear the first draft. 
And she kind of poked and poked and poked. And then the last question was like, look, why do you really need to deliver this talk? Why is this important to you? And I started crying. And I was like, because I don't want my kids to feel like people don't see them because they're not being asked the right questions, that they're not having these conversations. And I was like, it's just important for the kids. And she goes, there it is. And so then I reframed the talk and I felt like that I am so proud of. I felt like it was me in delivery, in like writing of it. I did it all myself. And I feel really proud that I finally, after felt like after I gave up my career, when I started just staying at home with the kids, not just when I started staying at home with the kids, I lost my voice a bit, Mm -hmm. a lot. And I felt like I am here. And you can, like, I was so proud of who I was because that's me. That is who I am at my best. And I feel really good about that. And I felt like I delivered what I needed to deliver. And um, I guess when people ask who your speaking coach is after you finish delivering it and you're like, didn't have one, I was like, I guess that means it was good enough, right? Yeah, like, you did great. You For your first talk uh, on that sort of stage, you were so comfortable and and you could you could see you felt the passion in the delivery it was like completely there so thanks i yeah. felt really like oh then i can do stuff my brain is still yeah. in my body i still have stuff to contribute to the world outside of the four walls of my home and raising these kids like i can have a voice again so that felt like freedom to me that felt awesome and then Around that time, I can't remember if, I think that, so that was in the fall. That prior spring, I had attended the World Happiness Summit because Tal Ben-Shahar and I had been in touch, we're sort of in touch once a year or random catch-ups. And he had said, you really should come to this World Happiness Summit. So I had gone. And then after that, I had said to them, look, because you know, I've hosted all those conversations at Chat You and Chocolate. I was doing some of these. I was playing around again yep. in Denver, doing some of these small events around town where I p- pulled people together. I said, "Look, hosting conversations is kind of my thing. Let me know if the World Happiness Summit founders are looking for an MC because I love the field and I'm this is what I do." And I got the job. I got the gig. So I then after the TEDx talk that following spring was able to MC co MC the World Happiness Summit. That's really cool. How amazing. many people attend that? Several thousand, I think is what they said. That's awesome. Um, I think it was like a thousand people a day. I, I, I trust, I don't know. They're, they have the numbers. I didn't, I'm really bad at estimating crowds of people when I look out at an audience. Sure. But um, it was most exciting to me because I've read all these people's names for years in like the research. I mean, all this time that I've, sort of even when I was stepping back from coaching people in and doing positive psych actively for other people, you know, I mean, our kids are raised in that mindset. We do our gratitudes. We do all the things that science tells us that are good. So I've read these people's research, seen their names, and I was like shaking their hand and meeting them. I was totally geeking out. Like I was so excited to finally put like faces to these people's names. And it was such an honor. And they do an incredible job at the summit, you know, pulling it together and growing it. I think it's, you know, several years now that they've had it and it continues to get better year after year. Is it a multi-day event? Mm -hmm. It's like like a full day, Friday, Saturday, and then half day Sunday event. Cool. All right. Well, awesome. So, and that was what year was that first year? I think it was last year, 2019. And then that was last year when I co-emceed and then this year I was supposed to, and then coronavirus happened. And everything got canceled. But this year I was going to empty it by myself, which would have been a very interesting challenge as well. Like I was really psyched to be able to do that and offer that to them. Um, so, so now it's a shame that it got canceled. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, so much, right? Everything's been turned on its head. But so now the the cool thing, uh, dear white women, your podcast. Yes. Yes, I know you're so stoked about it, and. And I have to tell you, you know that I listen to a lot on my own. Uh, you know, that's that. Unlike a lot of people that go to the gym, they listen to music. For some reason, I I look at time as being so precious that, you know, I have to with running my own company, I have to listen to enough music. So that is my escape 
in the gym is like, that's when I work on me and I listen to podcasts that help me and inform me. Um, and so I have to say that when I listen to your podcast, you, you again, you sound really natural at this. Um, I, I aspire to get to your level at doing this. Um, oh, stop it. You sound, you sound so amazing on it. I, it's just, you have a great voice so easy to listen to you. Um, So first of all, I have to ask you, when did that come out? When was the beginning of of this podcast for you? I would say almost exactly a year ago. Okay, cool. So second question is, how did you guys come and and explain who you do this with and and how it came about? But I really want to know, because from day one, I was like, how did you come up with this name? It's like, when I first heard it, I was I was like, is this going to be offensive to women that aren't white and men? And and I, I was thinking of all of these people that would hear this name and go, wait a second, what is this about? You know, so I'm really interested in how the name came up. And then I need you to explain sort of the, the foundation of the podcast, because um, I don't want to I, I would start putting my own words in and I know I, I'll be wrong, so I don't want to say anything. But let, that said, I would love to hear how you would describe it at well, some no. stage because I want to hear that. But but so it's a, a co-founded and co-hosted by me and my best friend of over 20 years. So she is also half Japanese, half white. We met over 20 years ago when we literally walked out of a racial identity meeting at Harvard as undergrads. Like it was the Half Asian People's Association. And at that same time, we both got up and like met as we were bumping shoulders out of the doorway, and we've been friends ever since. Wow. And who knew, right? De- decades later, we'd be having a conversation like this in our own podcast about stuff like on on race. But it came about because she and I had always talked about one day we'd do a business together. She's a lawyer. She's now a mom of two. She also has owned many. She's owned a bar studio. She like she does a lot. She she's like one of the smartest people I know. Full stop. And it's very sparkly energy factor and does just so much good for the, for the world. But we'd always talked about one day doing a business together and we couldn't figure out what that was, but we realized as we became moms and she is married, you know, I'm married to a white Canadian guy. She's married to a black man from the South and her two boys present as whoopsies. Excuse me. That's a reminder for my kid to get on online schooling. (laughs) (laughs) Not helpful at this exact moment. I apologize. Let me turn that alarm off. Maybe you can edit that out. Um, sorry about that. It's all right. Um, but, uh, okay, so. And by oh, yeah, the way, and by the way, one of my favorite white Canadian men alive. Yes. <laughs> Your husband. Who makes inc- incredible chicken wings. Yes. And <laughs> is a really, really good guy. Yes. Um, we started talking as, as friends and as moms about what it was like to raise kids. You know, we've got two girls and I was talking about like the things I have to be mindful of when raising girls in this society. And she has kids who present as very mixed race, um, as part black and was having, and she's got boys. And so her conversations about talking to how, how she needs to raise boys who are going to be perceived as black in this society. I mean, they were totally different conversations and fascinating for both of us. And we realized, I mean, we were talking all the time about this stuff. And we're like, well, one of the things we do the best, we were toying around with a whole bunch of ideas, but one of the things we do the best is talk. And so that makes sense to do a podcast at this point, because, you know, as like I said, she's a lawyer. She's also really into history. I bring the psychology and the thriving, that sort of mindset to it. And the conversational piece is around all the stuff we're learning as we go about racial justice, social justice, identity, happiness, like the thing that quite frankly in this COVID era are really becoming apparent about the inequalities that we have in our society and whether we're really seeing the humanity in each other. So ultimately, you know, this podcast is not just for white women. We call it Dear White Women for two reasons. One, it gets your attention. Yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Two, you know, we were really surprised at the number of women college educated and white women who voted for President Trump, who at that point, it was really clear that he did not respect women and had made a lot of derogatory remarks about women. 
And so just this idea of what is with people voting against someone who seems to indicate a lack of fundamental respect for their humanity? And why are we overriding that by going with policy or just how do we justify that? And again, that disconnect between heart and mind, we were just really interested in exploring that. So it's kind of as like, that's our target audience. Like the people who were willing to discount their humanity in favor of some greater, like how, how do we process that? And how do we reach people like that to think more critically about the issues we all face as part of our, our identity? And so as half Asian, half white women, we have like this, a little step in to not be just like, we, we both, you know, have a immigrant parent. We, we have this slight difference in perspective based on how we were both raised um, and so that's where the, the title came from. I mean, it was one of the first that we threw out there and it just stuck because it just made sense for us. Right. And, uh, and if I remember correctly, so it's a year now, but it blew up pretty quickly. Like you guys have really established yourself and, um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of great reviews. You, you were one of, I, I forget, isn't there some sort of like, you were one of the top podcasts in a certain... Yeah, so the Colorado House of Pod, which is another like podcasting center here in Denver, they had their inaugural podcast awards and we uh, tied for first for an episode that we did interviewing a Native American woman, which is a narrative you don't hear very much in this society. We learned, and she's also uh, an advocate and a spokes... Like she, she is just an incredible powerhouse of a woman, Crystal Echo Hawk. And she agreed to come on our show and talk about the Native American perspective of so much. You know, do you find certain sports teams' names offensive? You know, how what's oh, the reality yeah. of life? You know, as a, you know, how do you how do you approach Halloween and people dressing up in Native American costumes? And what do you make of headdresses? I mean, we were able to really get real with some of. I think that's it. We get to get real on our on our interviews that we do. So we have several interviews. We have a bunch of ones that it's just me and me, Sasha talking about it, but yeah, that episode won for best episode. And then we were recognized by fortune magazines, um, like Ellen McGirt, who does this incredible race ahead episode or like an email every day, but she asked for people's favorite podcasts. And we were mentioned in her like shortlist for Great. race and history, wow. which was incredible. Yeah. So we're pretty psyched. I, I, you know, the response we get from some of our super fans, especially, I mean, we're getting feedback on like, can you do Like right now we're in the middle of an ableism episode, like an arc that was recommended by a listener who said, look, this is an issue that we deal with. Can you help address it in the context that you do it? Because we have school districts saying they use us for equity work. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I'm so psyched that I get to do it. It's really fun and meaningful. And I feel like this is something I'm really, really proud of. Yeah. And you can tell it comes across, right? It's not like you're just, it, it's not just something that you do some sort of project that allows you to still have your voice be heard, but you're still at home taking care of two children. And it's, it's not at all. You, this is like, I could tell when we sat down and talked about it, it, this fires you up and it's nice that you can you're you're tackling something that you're passionate about you're getting your voice out there and the feedback coming it's always nice to have that kind of feedback where it's just like boom you're on the charts and people are recognizing what you're doing that's really cool yeah and you got me fired up to finally get get off my ass and get going you do your podcast joe <laughs> no i found i mean i've always found you uh, to be a role model, I mean, you're obviously, we're all really good friends, but I've always really respected how you have this drive to do stuff. Because I think my internal, com when I'm torn between like, I've got to provide for the kids and be there for them, like I'm a little soft when it comes to being there for them and, and taking time away and creating this vision and this drive and staying strong. And you've always had this, like, I got this and I'm going to do this. I'm going to create this and I'm going to pivot. I mean, I think to me, I learned so much from just knowing you and seeing the work you do that I love that now you're, you're here with a podcast and you're doing these things that, that excite you, but that really inspire other people. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's, I, you know, this whole, this whole COVID-19 thing I know has just devastated people and businesses, my own business, right? My own, there's nothing, there's nothing coming in, yeah. but at the same time, this personally, I, I'm not speaking in general in any way, shape or form has been a complete gift for me because 
I've been able to get all the business housekeeping things done that I need to, to be ready on the other side of this. Mm -hmm. I've been finally able to do this pod. I literally, I, I think if I looked the other day, when I started the website to eventually do this, it was in 2015. That's ridiculous that it took this long to do it. So everyone's going to have their, their own thoughts about what we're going through right now in April, 2020. But for me, and like Joellen jo came up with this great phrase uh, or this hashtag, embrace the pace. And it, for me, it's it's like, I forget to use it when I post a bunch like on Instagram, but it's, I I'm love this. And I'm a hustler, you know that. Like I'm, I yes. go, I go, go, go. But this pace right now is, is super cool for me and uh, I'm getting stuff done, but it's like, it's being able to do stuff like this that makes me happy. That's awesome. I love that. Embrace the pace. Yeah. Because, you know, we've talked about, Joel and I have talked about like um, sacred, but embracing this right now. I mean, I, I was just telling John earlier today, I felt like I had this realization in the middle of the night. I woke up with like this moment of like, I think for so long I was trying to justify why I wasn't as much of a hustler or what, like, cause I know I could do it if I had no other things pulling at my heartstrings and responsibility, like, but the kids they are, small still, like they're still needing oh, yeah. a little, they're great. They're self-sufficient now and they're a great age, but they still need a lot of hands-on stuff and attention and playing and all this sort of stuff. And I think for so long, I felt like I had to justify why I wasn't hustling as much. And now it's just like, well, forget again, going back to like, let's forget everybody else's expectations. Like I can finally just be like, it's cause I want to, I want to do a dance party with my kids instead of making an extra Instagram post for people, uh, you know, like I need to be here. This is really my priority and anything else I get to do is a bonus except for, you know, the podcast I'm just fired up about doing. I love that program and I will move mountains to make enough time to do at least enough to maintain, yep. even if I'm not blowing it through everything and growing it at the moment because the kids are home and they need me and it's okay. I don't have to justify Yeah, is, is this realization of just like, you know, like you said, you built an incredible business between 2015 and 2020. You know, it, it's not bad that you didn't do the podcast until right now. You grew a huge thing. Yeah. You are Joe Costello. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, so what's next? Um, this podcast for sure. I can see this going indefinitely. We want to write a couple of books, like change a couple of like the medium with which we're delivering this message because it can, the purpose is to reach people and get them thinking a little differently or just thinking about themselves a little differently. Uh, and then I'm super stoked to be hosting in-person panel discussions. Locally, it started already, but within the schools, um, having a panel of minority people, people who identify as minority, speaking to a room full of predominantly white people white heterosexual people, like, and just being like, look, this is my experience. Maybe you need, it'd be helpful if you understood that and had a in-person conversation about it because that might change how you, for example, teach kids who look like me, that sort of thing. And so I'm super excited to be bringing it into like taking it a step further, bringing it into real communities. And so there's already a few schools lined up for the fall. I'm looking forward to doing more of those as this platform continues to grow and restrictions lift yep. from people being places. Um, and so those are the two main things. And then, you know, eventually my big pipe dream of writing a novel about my mom's history. So that's what that's I was going to ask you. I was wondering, is there another book besides, I guess, there you, you know, you, you, I think you just kind of went past saying, I mean, you mentioned it, that you might do one with Misasha as part yes. of the yep. podcast. So, yep. So as you guys will, podcast. okay. And then, then you eventually will do possibly your own again. Yeah. Well, and that is more of a, I've never written a book like that before. I've never done fiction, um, but it's like a historical fiction. My mom has this crazy story about her childhood and how she grew up. Um, I know Joellen was like, you should interview Sarah's mom. Oh yeah. She, oh yeah. She taught, she, we talked about the story a little bit and I was like, wow, that's really but I'll, right? but I'll, yeah, but I'll let you, uh, I'll, you know, that should be yours for your novel, not for right? me. <laughs> but that's what I want to write. That story is so crazy town that I want to write that story and she, like dive into that. And I think it explains a little bit about who she is now yeah. because of her history. And I would love 
to, again, like learn as I like write about it, you know, and process it. Um, so I'm really excited. That's my longer term project because, uh, that's just a personal thing that I want to get out there. It's, you know, my voice is screaming to be heard about how my mom, what my mom had to go through yeah. as a child in post-war Japan. So yeah, that's it. That's what well, I got. Awesome. You rock. So do help me do this again. Where can they find you? You have a website, right? What's the website? So my personal website, sarahblanchard.com, S-A-R-A-B-L-A-N-C-H-A-R-D.com, um, podcast, dearwhitewomen.com. And you can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe on Spotify, on I mean, basically every main platform that you can find out there. Okay. What about um, uh, any of the other social platforms? Social platform on Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. It was too long for Twitter. So we're DWW podcast over there. Um, and then for my personal stuff, Sarah Blanchard author at on Instagram and Facebook. And I really personally, are you into Twitter? I can't it just, for some reason, I, every once in a while I go, Oh God, it's been like a week and I haven't posted anything up there. I just, I, I get zero interaction up there. Yeah. It's not my, I don't, I don't enjoy it. I find it like stressful every time I see something. So I personally do not, I'm, I do not have an active Twitter account. Yeah. I can't do it. I just can't figure it out. I just don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's not my thing right it's now. It's for the young people. Hey? It's for the young people. <laughs> All right. Well, you rock. I so appreciate you doing this, especially in the early stages of me getting my own podcast out there that you would come on. Um, you're an important guest uh, as a friend and the stuff you're doing. And so I appreciate it. And I'm learning from you. You sound great. Podcast is amazing. And um, you're you. awesome. I appreciate you it. You are awesome. I'm really psyched that you're doing this. Thanks for letting me be part of it. Thank you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. All right. That sounds good. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Joe Costello Show. I'm glad you came back. I would appreciate it if you would subscribe, if you haven't already. If you have a chance to rate the podcast, that would be awesome. Five stars are always welcome. And if you have time, it would be great if you could review the podcast and give me your honest opinion. Thanks again so much. I appreciate you all. Have an amazing day.